thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Six minutes past nine o'clock. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the show. My name is Ridi Kabi. We are together until 12 midday. It's a different show today. I know that South Africans are talking about the fake expert on the Oscar Pistorius trial. He's not fake. He has qualifications, but perhaps not in the area in which he was testifying yesterday. I'm talking about Roger Dixon. Well, I can assure you that for the next hour, we do not have fake scientists. We've got the naked scientists live in front of a studio audience. Chris Smith, welcome. And Hannah. <laughs> uh, Chris, can you not give Aki something to make him sit down? I think he's had too much sugar this morning. Or too much coffee. <laughs> Welcome. It's a pleasure to have you here. And I'm particularly delighted that there are some young minds, the future scientists of tomorrow, who have you taken time from school to be with us? Your school um, principals know that you are here, right? So we, we're not going to get into trouble. They will do in a minute when we can. <laughs> so welcome. We're going to have loads of fun. We're going to be watching the naked scientists at work. And I must just say, those of you who didn't manage to get a, a, a place for this morning, you can go watch the naked scientists at the Rand Easter show. I'll give you the dates uh, in just a few minutes. But right now, we are going to get started with our program and see what Chris has up his sleeve. Chris? What what can we expect this morning? Okay, well, good morning. Hello, everybody. And what a wonderful turnout. It's lovely to be here. Isn't the weather glorious as well? Thank you so much, South Africa, for this lovely weather. Lovely way. It's it's not often that we leave Britain and arrive somewhere where the weather is worse. (laughs) Very unusual. Anyway, we're here to brighten things up for you, and I hope you enjoy what we've got in store. So sitting to my right is Hannah Critchlow. Hannah works with us at the Naked Scientists in Cambridge. She is a neuroscientist. Hannah, tell us a bit about you and uh, what you're going to entertain everyone with this morning. Well, thank you very much, Chris. I'm delighted to be here this morning. Um, I'm really interested in the brain. I've got my PhD in neuroscience. I looked at connections in the brain and how they give us our sense of reality, our sense of um, reality um, of the world. And I'm going to be doing some experiments that's going to be electrifying your nervous system. We're going to be tweaking with your sense of reality and altering your perception. And we're also going to be doing some uh, uh, experiments that will make you a little bit off balance, a little bit off kill. So that should be exciting. So I'm looking forward to those. If you've got any questions about the brain as well, then hopefully um, I'll be able to answer them as well. Fantastic. So what we're going to do is not only uh, provide an opportunity for you who are joining us here, but we'll open the lines as well. So if you're in the office, you couldn't be with us today and you have questions and uh, we get a lot of questions, Hannah, about the brain and and all of that. So I'm delighted that you are here. Uh, Our number again, 021-446-0567-011-883-0702. And of course, The Naked Scientist is brought to you by The Rand Show. It's showtime. It's the 18th. When is the 18th? 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. It's tomorrow. 18th to... <laughs> no, I always, re- I always remember the date on... Don't laugh at me, this gentleman in front. I always remember the date on a Sunday. So I counted. I knew the Sunday was the 13th, so I'm just counting. Okay. Something that um, I couldn't tell you is that it's not just technology, but numbers as well. So it is the 18th to the 28th of April at the Expo Center, Johannesburg, Nazareth. Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. All right, Chris, get going. What do you have for us? Well, shall we start with some questions? Yes, to get, okay, get we'll, we'll do that. So Should we walk around? Who's going to be walk around? Who, who's, got a, who's got a question that they've been... Do- Is there anybody here who's been sending me an SMS for the Naked Scientist for over nine months. There is somebody who keeps SMSing me the mm. same question, and sometimes when we answer, they're not listening, and then they ask again uh, next week. So if you are that person, I'm going to be very generous. You've had this burning question, and you haven't had an opportunity to ask. Go for it. Introduce yourself, 
and uh, keep your question very, very brief. All right, ready? Okay. I've got someone over here. This is the, uh, the youngest member of the audience this morning. How what is old your... are you? How old are you? Five. Five, okay. Fantastic. Joshua. Joshua. What's your question, Joshua? How does radios work? <laughs> How do radios work? Well, I've got a microphone on my collar, and that microphone is picking up sound waves which are coming out of my mouth. Sound waves are vibrations in the air, molecules bashing into each other. Those vibrations go into the microphone, and in the microphone, there's a little coil of wire. And the coil of wire is connected to a diaphragm, and the sound waves hit the diaphragm and make it move, and the coil of wire moves. And around the coil of wire is a magnet. And when you move a wire through a magnetic field, it makes a current flow in the wire. Now that current is transmitted down the wire to, in this case, a mixing desk here, and that mixing desk then sends that electrical signature of the sound waves I produced to a transmitter, and the transmitter then beams an electromagnetic wave, which is a form of light, to the antenna on your radio, and when it hits the metal antenna of your radio, it makes a current flow up and down the antenna. This goes inside the radio, and inside the radio is an amplifier which can convert the electricity in the antenna, which is at very, very small levels, into a much bigger electrical signal inside the radio, which then f is fed to the speaker, and the speaker's like a microphone in reverse. So you have a coil of wire around a magnet, and the current flowing in the coil of wire makes a magnetic field. The magnetic field of the coil of wire interacts with the magnetic field of the magnet, and as you know, when you push two magnets together, one repels the other, and this makes the speaker move. And when the speaker moves, it moves air, and this makes vibrations in the air which go through the air to your ears, and you then hear the radio show. It's much easier. It's, mu it's much easier to work on the radio. Uh, I, I hope everyone's been making notes because there's going to be a test after this. Huh? Yeah. You know, I've got a quick question related to what you've just said. I've seen recently in the newspapers, in the news, this new research that's coming out talking about radio waves. They're saying that the radio waves that your cell phone emits can cause cancer. Is this true or not? Are cell phones dangerous? People have been looking for a really long time, Aki, at the health implications of using mobile phones. And the way they've done it is to go back to old historical medical data before the big introduction of mobile phone technology and to look at all causes of cancer and especially brain tumors because with the phone being held close to your head, the part of the body receiving the biggest dose of microwaves is going to be your head area because that's where most of the time when the phone is most active, it's spending most of its time so you can talk into it. And so they've compared the rates of brain tumors and head and neck cancers in the pre-mobile phone era, so from the 70s and 60s, with modern era, so for the last 30 years since mobile phones began to be introduced. And there has been no increase in the rates of tumors in the brain comparing those two groups. So at the moment, people are pretty satisfied that there's not an association of using a mobile phone with uh, brain cancers, but there is a potential caveat. That caveat is that we've only been looking for a relatively short time, and therefore, if it takes more than that time for the risk to change, we won't have seen it yet. That's the first point. And the second point is that just looking at cancer may only be part of the story, because it may be that the microwaves, mobile phones use a microwave radiation, it may be that that exposure has in some way an influence on the way the brain works without us necessarily realizing that. And we know that it definitely warms up parts of the brain because microwaves heat things up. So maybe there's a thermal effect, and that thermal effect may well have a behavioral consequence, and as yet we don't know. I don't know what you think from a neuroscience point of view, Hannah. Yeah, so I'd like to echo what Chris is saying. So as well as scientists looking at human studies, epidemiological studies, looking at how people have reacted to these, the, uh, the uh, mobile phone era over the years, also scientists just outside of Cambridge have been taking brain cells and growing them in a Petri dish and then exposing them to the equivalent of a few hours of um, telephone use via the microwave kind of emittance. 
um, and then finding out if that is affecting the way that these cells are behaving in terms of whether they're proliferating, whether they're growing in different ways. And it seems to be looking at using the markers that these scientists have used, that these cells in a dish, this network of cells in a dish, aren't responding differently in terms of how they're proliferating, how they're growing, and how they're communicating with each other. They're not responding differently to these microwaves. But that's just looking at cells in a dish, you know. Um, so, yeah, so more studies are really required, but it doesn't seem as though mobile phones are having a, a bad effect on Sure, I'll be okay. <laughs> 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 All right, uh, Aki, you're going to get us another question from the audience. Ben in Linksfield, I see your call. I'm coming to you in just a few minutes, but let's get a question from an audience member. Hi, my name is Irfan. I wanted to know why our recorded voice is sound different to us when we hear them after re recording. Yes, indeed. So let's have a show of hands in the audience. When you've heard yourself on tape having been recorded, did you sound the way you expected yourself to sound? <laughs> it's was, traumatic, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and as one of my good friends said, that the best you ever learn to do when you make radio programs or sing or anything like that and hear yourself recorded back is you learn to tolerate yourself at best and never to like the way you sound. And it really is quite traumatic, isn't it, really, when you hear yourself back on the radio, you think, God, do I really sound like that? <laughs> and the reason is quite simple. And that is that when I'm speaking to you, as I've already outlined, we make sound waves. And the way we make sound waves is by our vocal cords opening and closing and making little puffs of air, which then create resonances in, in, inside my mouth. And they then create a pattern of waves which go out into the air. Now, some of those waves will come round the side of my head and go into my ears. And in my ears, I have an ear drum. And that ear drum vibrates in the same way a microphone diaphragm would. And the sound waves are then conducted through a series of three tiny bones, malleus, imbacus, and stapes, into my inner ear. And in the inner ear, you have this organ called the cochlea, which converts sound waves into brain waves, for want of a better phrase. When I'm talking to you, you're hearing me via that route. Those sound waves are coming across the room and going into your ears. But in me personally, there's another way that sound can get into my cochlea. And that is that when my speech is produced, the vibrations happening in my mouth are also making my skull and the bones of my head vibrate. And those vibrations are transmitted also to the cochlea in my inner ear. So when I hear myself, I'm actually hearing a mixture of both what's coming in from the air and what's being transmitted through bone. And because the bones will resonate in a slightly different way to the structures in my ears, I hear a slightly different set of frequencies being amplified compared with what you hear. So I think I sound the way I think I sound, but I actually sound the way you're hearing me sound. And when you speak and record yourself, what I hear from you is actually what's on that recording. Love it or loathe it, that's the way we all sound. You could make a song out of that, really. What you hear out of my inner ear coming out of my outer ear, my cochlear inner ear. It's like a rap. I'll kick you in the rear. <laughs> I kick. Let's go to Ben in Linksfield. Ben, you've got a question about the brain. Welcome. Hi, guys. Yes, and my question is actually for Hannah. I just want to know if there's a correlation between the size of the brain and intelligence. Okay, did you all hear that? Stop Excellent. looking at me, Reedy. <laughs> size is important, Aki. You're okay. <laughs> <laughs> So if you look at, I mean, brilliant question, if you look at different species, it doesn't seem to be the size of the brain that's important in terms of intelligence and how you behave in different ways and whether you can do different intelligent tasks. Um, but it's actually the size of the prefrontal cortex, which is a bit of the brain that's just behind your forehead, which is nice and wrinkled. It's got lots of um, surface area and it's all wrinkled. And it's thought that this bit of the brain, this bit behind your forehead, is involved in something that scientists call higher cognitive functions. So that's kind of planning things out, reasoning things in your brain, and being able to not act just on impulse, but to control those impulses and think more towards the future and think about, for example, saving things for the future, maybe, I don't know, your pension, for example, being less, less risky. Um, so there's squirrels, for example, that will save nuts for the future. They'll, ha they'll be using their prefrontal cortex for that. So it seems as though there's more of a correlation between the size of the prefrontal cortex and intelligence as we measure it, for, for example, saving things for the future and being able to plan and reason and do different tasks. Um, when you look at humans specifically at the size of their prefrontal cortex and intelligence, there doesn't seem to be 
that much of variation, and there doesn't seem to be that much of a correlation. So there's not that much difference between yeah, human specific. Sorry, Ben. Sorry. Okay, let's take a break, and when we come back, we'll continue to get wonderful questions. Keep them coming. We also have our SMS line running as well, so if you want to send me an SMS, do so. And on Twitter, there's some great questions coming through on Twitter as well. Uh, you can follow us. Is, uh, it's at Ridiklabi or at Naked Scientist. Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Okay, we've got your questions. Brian and Wilbert, I see your calls, but it's time for an experiment. Chris, what are you going to show us, Chris and Hannah? Well, the nervous system is an electrical one. In fact, if I were to measure the amount of energy which it's taking to run the brains of the average person in this room, it would come to about 20 or 30 watts. It's quite a lot, isn't it? Because a human body runs at about two watts per kilogram. And we're all nice and slim and svelte in this room, including even the great Aki. And, uh, and this means that roughly each person in this room is about 100 watts. And your brain accounts for about 20% of your energy demand. So that means your brain's about 20 to 30 watts. And so if it's electrical and nerves are sending electrical signals backwards and forwards, we should be able to measure those and also send some signals of our own. And Hannah's going to have a go on one of the 702 staff. That's exactly what I am going to be doing. Can anyone uh, guess uh, how we're going to be experimenting, how we're going to be designing an experiment to test whether the nervous system uses electricity as its mode of communication? Anyone have a guess? It's a, a mean experiment, yeah? Okay. She's going, you're going to try and light up a light bulb? That's try, what he's saying. Try and use someone's nervous system to light up a light bulb. Yeah, that's one way that you could do it. Tap into someone's nervous system and see if it could power, and power a light bulb. Yeah, well, you could do that. that Any more guesses? So, something that's a little bit more intrusive, actually, than, <laughs> than that. Oh, I think somebody knows you, Hannah. Shock them. Shock, Shock them. them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> We're going to be electrically shocking. Can, I volunteer, can I volunteer Rudy for this experiment? Yes, please. That's very good of you to volunteer. Red is saying no. <laughs> we do have a very brave volunteer Zoe, coming up. Our <laughs> programming manager, Zoe. Well, this is this is our one of our program managers, you know. So I think we need to put the current extra high. I'm only joking, Zoe. Well. <laughs> now, Uzo, Muzo, sorry. Here is um, the electric shock panel that we're going to be applying to your nervous system. Where do you think we should apply this in the nervous system? <laughs> Careful. Yeah. <laughs> There's some rude replies coming back A lot of people here. are saying behind his neck, some are saying on his head, some are saying on his arm. Where's the best place to put it? Where's, well, one of the most exposed, exposed nerves in the body is the uh, ulna nerve. Now, you know when you hit your funny bone? It's not funny, is it? <laughs> it's quite painful. And the reason that it's painful is that you've got this r long bundle of nerves all bundled, cabled together like an electric cable, running from the back of your shoulder all the way down your arm, past your funny bone, your olecranon, to the end of your wrist, and then it causes this electrical discharge, which then causes the release of a chemical, which then electrically activates the muscles in your hand. And so we're going to be... Um, electrically activating Muzo's ulnar nerve. Yeah. I like the way you think Using Hannah. this electric shock panel here. <laughs> so, yeah, you're good to go. So if you now apply the shock panel, and then I'll switch it on in a second. Have you got it on the right in the right place? Is that about the right place there? Yeah. 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 And holding Turn it, it on as high as you can. Okay, this as is me moving it myself. Yeah. Okay. So now what do we think is going to happen when we apply the electricity? <laughs> There's lots of people in the audience kind of like gripping their hands frantically and causing a hand movement. Yeah, that's exactly what we should expect will happen. So should we count down now? Here we and go. I'm going to press the on switch. Five, Five four, three, three two, two, one. one. <laughs> 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 He's shaking like a rake. That's, incred that's incredible. <laughs> Mzoa's hand is just shaking like crazy. 
Should we switch it off? I mean, how is it? Is it painful? No, put, it on, put it on higher. I want to see what else it can <laughs> do. How's the sensation? So is it tickly? What is it? It's I'm actually a tingling sensation, really. Yeah. It's not sore. You can carry no, on like that. It's not sore. This is not the time for me to ask for a salary increase. You're not in pain. <laughs> Listen, it'll be an involuntary action. <laughs> much, I'll tell you. That's amazing. Is this, is this similar when you go to the physio and they do something similar to you when they want to heal your muscles? So... Can I just quickly tweak with some of these? Uh, yeah, yeah, the TENS machine will be doing a similar thing. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, so it's applying a mild electric, electrical <laughs> stimulation so to it. <laughs> so if I now um, tweak with the repeat frequency, right, you can actually see that the muscles are spasming at a different frequency. You know, it's now slowing down. Slowing down, it's slowing down. I'm now going to increase the frequency <laughs> of the electrical stimulation. <laughs> Look at that. That is so weird. Should we switch it off? I mean, are we being no, a little no, bit... No, no, I'm enjoying no, we, this. Okay, we'll keep it on. <laughs> so, are you I'm moving not. your hand? Are you doing anything? Are you just standing still? Hey, is no your control. hand frozen? Can, can you try and straighten your fingers? Hey, um, I, I'm I sorry. Can't. Did anyone tell you the effect is permanent? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you've got the middle finger now, so you're in big trouble. <laughs> Isn't that amazing, Eridi? Absolutely stunning. Wow. Quite literally. Wow, Hannah, that was fascinating. <laughs> that was absolutely... Give a round of applause. Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. 28 minutes to 10 o'clock. Lots of questions coming from the audience. Aki, what do you have next? Absolutely, ready. And I must also tell the people that are listening to us, if you go to our Facebook account and look up Talk Radio 702, you'll find that there's a link to a live stream. So you can see whatever's happening live on your screen, wherever you might be, on your mobile phone or your computer. And then you can watch the show afterwards as well because some of the experiments are very visual. But you can watch us now live. Just go to Facebook, search for 702, and click on the button. Now, Ramon, what is your question, young man? This is a hello. This is a question for Hannah, and I'm just asking, what is consciousness? Ooh. Whoa. Whoa. That's deep. Next question, please. <laughs> what is consciousness? Yeah, that's one that's not properly been explained by scientists yet. We're trying to understand it exact, um, precisely. Um, we think it's something to do with how the brain makes connections. So we've got 100 billion nerve cells in our brains. So that's about 14 times the number of people on the planet in terms of nerve cells in your brain. It's pretty colossal. And each one of those brain cells can be connected to up to 10,000 other cells. And the way that those connections, so there's about 100 trillion connections in your brain, the way that those connections change over time is we think in response to what you learn and remember from your environment, which will then... Um, cause you to react differently to the next situation that you come across. And we think consciousness is something to do with that. The way that we can make connections, we can change the structure and the plasticity, kind of the flexibility of our brain in response to what we've learned from our previous um, experiences, and that will affect how we behave in the future. Chris, would you vaguely agree with that? Scientists don't know uh, what consciousness is. They actually call it the hard problem because for years people have tried to understand why we are conscious. Because if you look inside the brain, what you see are millions and millions and millions of nerve cells. And they're making millions and millions and millions of connections to each other. And there are messages zipping backwards and forwards between these nerve cells. And if you look in different parts of the brain, you will find a region of the brain that's specialized for doing one thing, another region of the brain that's specialized for doing another. For instance, if I were to stimulate a region of my brain roughly adjacent to my left ear, then I would find that the right-hand side of my body began to move. If I stimulate right at the back of my head on the right-hand side, I would see spots of light appearing on the left-hand side in front of my vision. So we know that there's all these different bits of the brain which do certain jobs, and they present stimuli which we can become aware of or conscious of, but how those are all united together to give us this feel that there's an ongoing stream of consciousness an experience where all these things are united together and we're awake and aware, we really don't know. There's a very strong selectivity which is applied to the information coming in. We're being deluged in information all the time, from the sensation of what you're wearing on your feet to what you're wearing on your, clo on your, on your legs, on your arms, to the smells that are going on around you, to the sounds going on all around you, to what you're looking at. And actually what your brain is doing is filtering out selective things for you to attend to. And this is probably because if you were to attend to everything, you would suffer from some kind of informational overload, 
and you wouldn't be able to pay attention to the really important things. How we do that, how we achieve that, and which parts of the brain are important in making that happen, we really don't know. What makes us conscious? We really don't know. But what we do know is that there are populations of nerve cells in the part of the brain called the brain stem, which connects your spinal cord to the top of your brain. And those nerve cells are sending messages right through the brain, which effectively sets a pulse. And it's effectively switching on different parts of the brain and synchronizing their activity so that they're effectively all on the same wavelength as each other. And if you damage that, that so-called reticular activating system, then you lose consciousness. And what happens in people who go into coma after a very bad head injury is often that they've damaged those nerve cells or temporarily deactivated them. And this interrupts the ability of you to, to stay awake. And when you take sedatives like antihistamines, if anyone's ever taken an antihistamine and noticed that you feel really sleepy afterwards, Histamine is, an, is a nerve transmitter chemical coming from your brainstem up into your forebrain, and it's involved in that process. So it seems that there's a number of different issues. It's how different regions of the brain are united together, so they all exchange messages, and it's how you get them all in sync with each other so that they're all on the same wavelength and all presenting their information to this common conscious concept that is the way we experience the world. I've got a tweet here from Togo who wants to know uh, whether maths was invented or discovered. Well, that's a hard one. <laughs> was maths invented or discovered? Um. <laughs> My personal take on this is that, and if you ask a mathematician, they will say that these relationships between numbers exist. And it's not that we've created a construct for that. Those relationships exist whether we exist or not. And that's why we, we've sent prime numbers out on the Voyager spacecraft out into space on the odd chance it might encounter an alien because you know, they'll, they'll recognize these, these prime numbers as being a unique mathematical property. And this will therefore tell them that we must be intelligent enough, in inverted commas, uh, to actually understand the concept of math. So we think those relationships exist regardless of whether, whether or not we exist to interpret them. So the old philosopher's argument, if a tree falls over in a forest is it, and there's no one there to hear it, does it make any sound? Well, in that context, we think that maths exists whether philosophically we're here to interpret it or not. Does everyone agree? Do we love maths? Yay! <laughs> Don't ask me if I'm good at maths because the answer would be no. <laughs> okay, so Aki, who's yes, got the next question? Yes, we got a question and we're going to walk to the floor and there's a gentleman who's raised his hand over here who's got a question. Right, what's your name, sir? Hello, my name is Eric. I'm a nuclear scientist, not a naked one. <laughs> <laughs> my question is, do we yet know uh, what happens at the Bermuda Triangle? And why triangle, why not rectangle? <laughs> and is it not possible that the Malaysian air flight that disappeared, it disappeared in one of the triangles that we don't know yet? Okay, so That's are, a we great being, question. are we being shapist about the Bermuda Triangle? <laughs> uh, I don't think the answer is we are. Uh, th there are some anomalous things which have disappeared in the Bermuda Triangle in terms of things just vanish without trace. But then it's a very big area of the world. It's an area where there are bizarre weather patterns which can suddenly come out of nowhere. And so it's not in altogether impossible that things would disappear without trace there for various reasons. One theory which has been advanced is that if you have water saturated with a gas, the water becomes a lot less buoyant. And if you actually were to bubble a lot of gas into water, the gas takes up a lot of space, pushing the water out of the way. And because the gas weighs a lot less than the water does, if you're a boat floating on the water, you stay afloat because you're pushing a weight of water out of the way that weighs more than your boat does. So when the water pushes back on you, you float because you're less dense than the water being pushed out of the way. If you replace a lot of the water with gas, uh, effectively by bubbling lots of tiny bubbles through the water, then you're pushing out of the way gas, which weighs a lot less. So therefore, the buoyancy force, the pushback on you is a lot less, so your boat sinks. Why am I telling you this? Well, there's evidence that embedded in the seafloor in various places are very large deposits of methane. And these can be convulsively burped up from the seabed, and they will escape in one big sort of belch of methane and saturate the water. And this gas will effectively make lots of tiny bubbles, making the water a lot less dense transiently, and if you're a boat on that water, you could suddenly just sink. And you would literally just sink without trace. It would be like the floor opening up and you falling through it. And this may account for the disappearance of a number of vessels, not just in the Bermuda Triangle, but in other places. And 
off the coast of Scotland in the UK, where there is a very rich field of, of gas and oil, there is an area, I think it's called the Witch's Hole. And in the middle of the Witch's Hole is sitting a fishing trawler, upright, completely undamaged, on the seafloor. And it disappeared without trace a number of years ago. And people then discovered this fishing trawler sitting there. And it's rather tantalizing to think that in this area where we know there are big deposits of methane locked up in the seafloor, that you should then see a ship suddenly undamaged and sitting keeled down. So not as though it's capsized, but keeled down on the seabed. So we think this is probably a, a real phenomenon. And that may explain some of the, the disappearing acts that these boats do. I want to send Reedy there. <laughs> Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist downstairs. We call it downstairs, uh, our entertainment area here at Talk Radio 702. And we've got a fantastic audience. If you don't believe me, let me ask them. Are you all having a good time? Wonderful. And uh, let's go straight. We're getting ready for our next uh, experiment. But I do want to read this tweet from Sean Cunningham, who is obviously here, and uh, says, "Okay, so for those that asked, at Naked Scientists, do not use Google to find their answers on air. They just answer. Thank you very much, Sean, for telling the public that wherever you're sitting. Uh, Let's go to Wilbert. Wilbert in Hatfield. Hi. Hi, Reddy. My question for the Naked Scientists is on memory. And I'd like to know that uh, when you go out of school and you want to know what you want to study, you do all of these tests, the kind of your aptitude tests. My maths and stuff like that has always tested really high, but memory has tested very low, especially short-term memory. I'd like to just understand scientifically what creates that ability to have a good memory, and then scientifically, how can we we actually improve that? Okay. Mm -hmm. Great question. So um, there's this little region in the brain which is shaped like a kidney bean or a seahorse. It's actually called the hippocampus from the Greek meaning curved horse. And it's about the size of your little finger all curved up. There's two of them, one on each side of the brain, deep in the brain, this little hippocampi. And it's involved in memory. Um, and it communicates uh, quite, quite strongly with the prefrontal cortex, the area of the brain behind your forehead that I mentioned earlier. And as you form new memories, then new connections will form between those nerve cells in the hippocampus. And as you learn something new, um, the connection will kind of, like one nerve cell will, will, form a, will try and make another connection with another nerve cell, and it'll be like a little worm kind of like creeping out to make that connection. As you consolidate that memory by going back and um, kind of remembering that thing again to reinforce the memory, then that connection will change shape from this little worm into something that's got this bulbous head that's shaped more like a mushroom, if you imagine a mushroom head, and it's got lots of receptors in that mushroom head of it, and that's what allows the electricity, the, um, the signal from one nerve cell to pass to the other nerve cell. So that's all going, in the hippocamp- going on in the hippocampus. It's the connection of new nerve cells, um, between new connections between nerve cells, and that's going on in the hippocampus, that region of the brain involved in memory. Fascinating, fascinating mm-hmm. stuff. So now, if you do want to listen to us and you want to watch us as well, if you're listening to us on the radio at home or you're on your mobile phone somewhere in the middle of nowhere, you can watch a live stream because we're going to be doing experiments and you can see the live studio audience and exactly what's happening. And now it's time for the next experiment, Nidhi. We need everybody to listen carefully, right, Chris and Hannah? <laughs> Indeed. Uh, now, what you think you're hearing isn't necessarily what you think you're hearing. Because your brain is actually doing an enormous amount of work behind the scenes to fill in gaps for you. And we've actually got a really nice demo to show you this happening. So what we've got is, Thomas has got some soundtracks, which Hannah's going to direct him to play. And you're going to hear some stuff which initially might sound like gobbledygook, but then we're going to make it make a lot more sense. And what's actually happening when it makes a lot more sense is that your brain is filling in the gaps that were there before, so that the next time you hear the same thing again, it now makes perfect sense, Hannah. Thank you, Chris. So if you play the first track, please, Thomas. Does anyone know what was, what was being said there? Oh, there's one hand up in the audience, yeah? Wait, hang on a second. Could you I hear can't that? believe Could it's you hear so new. What was that? It's like... That's what I was saying. I think it sounded like somebody going to the zoo. To the oh. zoo? <laughs> That's impressive. Can we play it again? Just so you can yeah. really missed it. Oh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a really when she phones me in the afternoons. 
I heard the zoo bit at the end. I think but you're onto something. I, I think you are onto something there. So there's maybe 150 people in the audience here, mm -hmm. and one person caught the end of uh, the end of this track and was able to make sense of it. So I'm now going to play a second track, and this will show how once you hear something, that will then affect how you interpret new things in your environment. And again, we think it's to do with um, how our brain integrates all of the information that's coming in through our senses all of the time and how our brain is bombarded by all this information, these electrical signals coming into our brain, and how we try and make sense of the world around us to give our sense of reality and our perception based on what we've learned from previous experiences and previous environments. So now I'm going to be tweaking with your perception by um, playing the second... The camel was kept in a cage at the zoo. So play that one more time, please. The camel was kept in a cage at the zoo. So that's pretty clear, isn't it? That's saying... I didn't hear it. What, what, I, I couldn't get that. Oh, no. <laughs> Audience, what do you think it was saying? What do you think it was saying? Camels. Oh, he's talking about the camels, you see? They so picked it up. The camel was kept in the cage at the zoo. So if we now return to the very first track, which sounded like complete and utter gobbledygook to the majority of us beforehand... Let's see if we can make sense of it now. Ah. <laughs> Thank you, Thomas. The camel, the camel was definitely being kept in a cage at the zoo. The poor camel. Um, so that's an example of how tweaking with our experiences, changing our experiences, can then affect how we interpret new situations in the world. So that was an auditory illusion there. Fantastic. Absolutely great. Right, we move. Do you have more questions yeah, from the I, audience? I've got a young man over here. What's your name? Julian. Julian, how old are you? Eight. Right, Julian. Big question to ask the naked scientist and Hannah. What is your question? How far is space and does it have an end? How far is space? That's deep. Hi, Julian. Yeah, well, deep space even. Yeah, good question. The universe started about 13.8 billion years ago, which is slightly older than you are. <laughs> and, and, uh, and it started from one tiny point in space. And that point, after a thing called the Big Bang, which was a catastrophic, cataclysmic explosion, has been expanding. And the universe is growing like a bubble. And the more it grows, the faster it grows. So as far as we know, that the universe is this bubble, which if you were at the center of it and you measured out to the edge of it, you'd have something about 13.8 billion years as the radius of the bubble. And also, because it's a curved bubble, if you started in one place, you would go round in a circle probably and come back to where you started. So you could regard the universe as sort of an infinite loop. You could go round forever and go round and round and round. It'd be a long journey, though, because it would take all that, that circumference. You think that the circumference of a, of a circle is pi that's th about 3 times d, the diameter. So you've got to times 13.8 by 2, so let's call it 14. So that's two, 2 lots of 14 is 28, and times that by 3, which is an approximation for pi. And so that, call that 30 times 3, that's about 90 billion uh, light years around the edge of the universe. So it's quite a big circumference, and it's growing all the time, so you'd never get back to where you started. I thought Long so. Way. Thank I thought you very so. much. That was a brilliant Longer than question. the journey from where we were staying in our hotel into the centre of Joburg today. <laughs> <laughs> but not Te much. Oh. We've got Temi. Temi in Observatory. Hi, Temi. Hi, yeah. I have a question about the concept of play. I wonder what um, part of our brain is responsible for play and why it seems to be such a big part of human life and not just humans but also animals. Play. Why do people play? Why do people play? Well, yeah, you're quite right. You do see lots of play. Um, for example, mice like playing together. Uh, monkeys like playing together. And they do this from a very young age. And we think it's something to do with being able to learn um, what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. What's within the boundaries of danger and being safe. What's in the um, boundaries of whether you could hurt someone else and, and whether you're actually being nice to them. And this play seems to facilitate these types of boundaries. Um, where exactly it happens in the brain, that's a really good question, and I don't know the answer to that. I don't, Chris, I don't I, know. I suspect this is, again, this, this prefrontal part of the brain where you're learning to put yourself in other people's shoes. Because by playing with people, you're learning complex social interactions with them. You're learning, if I do X, what will that person do? But you're doing it in a safe way, because we all know it's a game. So when you're playing, you know it's not for real, so you can test out, if I behave in a certain way, what will be the reaction? because it's pretend they're not going to turn around and kill you if they're offended mildly by what you say. The other thing about play, often it involves tickling. And we had this question the other day about um, 
Why do we laugh or find it fun when we're tickled? And why do we have these very exaggerated reactions to being tickled? And if you think about it, your tickly bits are usually where you are most vulnerable. So were someone to hurt you in that area, you'd probably be pretty disabled. And so by making a, a tickle fun and make us laugh, a bit like that, <laughs> thanks, Aki, and I'm going to try and carry on talking while I'm being tickled to death, by actually making it no, fun... No, me. What you're, uh, I'm, I'm spilling my coffee now. <laughs> what you're actually Aki's doing... Aki's tickling Chris. What you're actually doing is... Now I've totally lost my train of thought. By, by making your tickly bits very, very sensitive... What you're doing is teaching people where those areas are in a fun way. And when I was being tickled, I was having to make all kinds of contortions and, and movements to avoid being tickled in my sensitive bits. And you therefore learn how to guard the bits of your body where you're most vulnerable in a fun way. So that when you're in a fighting situation later, you're in a position to therefore know how to execute deft maneuvers to avoid getting stabbed or struck or pit punched or kicked in the areas where you might get most severely injured. Hannah, I thought I saw your hand up here. Yeah. So um, try and tickle yourself. Can you tickle yourself? No, you generally speaking can't, unless, that is, that you've got something called schizophrenia, which is where you experience different um, perceptions of the world, so your reality is changed, and that means that you can actually tickle yourself. One of the byproducts of this brain um, disorder is that you can actually tickle yourself because you can't predict where you end and where other people in the, um, in the world are as well and what they're doing. You can't predict what you're doing compared to other people. Okay, let's get this question. We probably will only be able to answer it after the latest eyewitness news, but let's get the question and see how far Sandira, we go. Sandira, what's your question? Um, why do crocodiles eat their food um, rotten instead of fresh? Ooh, okay. Okay, I think we do have time to answer. Do we, Thomas? Yeah, do we have a quick, quick moment to answer that? Why do crocodiles eat their food rotten instead of fresh? Well, crocodiles haven't got cookers. And, um, <laughs> and, and actually, crocodiles don't really care because... They've got an extremely good immune system. They've got an extremely good ability to heal themselves. If, if a crocodile, like many reptiles, is injured, they have very well-developed systems for regenerating and redeveloping injured parts of the body, and they have a very good immune response. So when they eat all this rubbish, which uh, if you were to eat that kind of rubbish would probably make you feel quite unwell, they have no problem with it. And that's probably because evolution means that they've evolved to become extremely good at living in those environments because other things can't tolerate it. So they've evolved to, to live like that. Hmm. Interesting. Don't forget, you can see the Naked Scientists live at the Rand Easter Show from the 18th to the 28th of April. And as you may have heard in one of our promos, that you don't need to pay extra for that. Your ticket to the, um, to, to, to the Rand Show allows you access to the um, uh, Naked Scientists. So Chris and Hannah have agreed to take a few more questions before we wrap up. I can see that we're not going to have time for all the questions. I see many hands raised uh, uh, so far, Aiki, but let's just try our best. Right, we've got Richard over here. He's sitting right at the back of the room. Yes, Richard. Um, I've got a question for both of you. The Titan com supercomputer versus the human brain. They say that the Titan computer is better than the human brain. Why and which is faster? Okay, the shall, Titan I, shall I go computer. first on this one? Right. Your brain consists of millions and millions of nerve cells, which are all in and of themselves like the processors in your computer. And they're all wired up in what we call parallel. So all of those nerve cells can do things, including processing information, all at the same time as each other. That makes your brain incredibly fast as a means of processing. The downside is that it's not perfect, and some of those little processors make mistakes. If you contrast that with the computer sitting on your desktop, this may actually only have one, two, three, or maybe four processors in it. But that processor is ridiculously fast. And the instructions have to be fed to it one after the other after the other. And that's called serial processing. And this means that that computer can run very fast and do lots of repetitive calculations very quickly, but it's much less good at processing lots of things at the same time. So to try and compare how a human brain works with how a computer works, actually you're comparing sort of apples and oranges. It's not a very easy comparison to make because the nerve cell works very differently than the processor in a computer, which makes very precise measurements, but it has to do them one after the other. It can't do things at the same time. Okay. So therefore, they're two slightly different problems that we're trying to solve. Aki. Okay, I've got Prince over here. What's your question, Prince? Uh, no, but so much of brain question. But deja vu, let's unpack that. What happens in deja vu? And then secondly, has there been any scientific proof with regards to muti, magic, voodoo, and science? And what, what happens there? <laughs> I'm sure we've had the deja vu question before, haven't we? I know. It, it, it feels very familiar, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> 
So there's lots of situations uh, that you might stumble across which are in some way linked. There's certain things that link them to previous things that you've experienced. And that triggers off this memory that you're, you're there thinking, oh, hang on a second. Surely, that's, surely I've experienced this before. And actually, it might just be a similar thing that you, to what you've experienced. And your, your brain can't really process. We were talking about processing power earlier on. And because we've got parallel power um, circuits in our brain, we can't process that information quite as accurately. And so it seems as though it's similar to a previous experience and our mind mistakes it to something that we have experienced before and it's not. Does that make sense? That's a real speed answer yeah, to the, the question. The magic question is that there's a very big danger you'll fall into the coincidence trap. Every day, you'll read the stars in the newspaper or whatever and you'll think, wow, that's relevant to me. But actually, how many millions of people read it and thought, well, that's a load of claptrap? And the one time it did make sense for you, you attached enormous significance to it. Because we as, as animals, we're programmed to learn when things happen in relation to each other. Because that's how we learn. We look for connections. So when something chimes, like a prediction seems to come true, we attach enormous significance to it. And we ignore the thousands of times when there was no association. And this makes us fall into this trap of attaching significance to something insignificant. So you just have to ignore it. Hello, Mervyn. What's your question? Hi. Um, my question is for Hannah. It's actually to do with babies and classical music. I've often heard when babies are very young, sometimes even in the womb, and you expose them to various types of classical music, it enhances their brain. Uh, I think that's what you were talking about, higher cognitive function. Mm -hmm. Is this true, and how does this work? I tried it, but I was always hungry when I was pregnant, so I didn't get around it. So. <laughs> <laughs> there have been studies that have shown that mothers that like neighbors, I don't know whether you watch neighbors here, and have the neighbors theme tune, neighbors, everybody. Don't yeah. encourage Rudy to sing, please. <laughs> so if, you, if a mother listens, watches neighbors quite a lot and listens to the sound tune for it whilst the baby is developing the brain, then you can actually, when the baby is born, wire it up to electrodes and measure the um, activity in the baby's brain whilst they're listening to neighbors and they recognize it. They seem to have a memory, an inbuilt memory for what they've heard whilst they're in the womb. So there does seem to be this musical memory. Whether Mozart actually makes for a more intelligent baby, there has been some studies on this. So what they did is they took some um, students from Georgia, I think in America, and they made them do different tasks um, kind of answer different questions and show their IQ whilst listening to Mozart and after just sitting there and doing nothing. And it turned out that the students that had been listening to Mozart scored higher on the uh, IQ, the intelligence tests, rather than those that had just been sitting there doing nothing beforehand and whilst they were um, answering the questions. But then, they, um, but then they showed that actually it's just if you do anything, rather than just sitting there being bored... If you're doing anything, then um, you're more likely to be um, intelligent and do better at these types of tasks. So it's just keeping your brain active and keeping it busy and having sensory input seems to be a good thing. Listening to Mozart can't be a bad thing, but um, yeah, listening to anything can be good. I think my parents were, I was exposed to too much heavy metal. <laughs> right, Bella, what's your question? My four-year-old asked me this and I couldn't answer. Why do we have to sleep? <laughs> It's a really important question. We spend a third of our lives doing it, yet we know almost nothing about it, apart from the fact that if you don't go to sleep, you will die. And they've done experiments on animals where if you deprive a small animal like a rat or a mouse of sleep, it will die. After about three weeks, it dies. And in humans, if you deprive a human of sleep continuously for about three weeks, it begins to cause very profound hallucinations. People have psychosis. They get conditions that border on a schizophrenic-like situation. So it seems to be incredibly important for our emotional and psychological well-being. It also plays a very important role in memory. And if you do tests on people where you ask them to learn a new series of facts or a piece of information, and you then test them later, the recall of later tests is significantly enhanced if a sleep is inserted prior to the recall analysis. In other words, there's some kind of consolidation process that occurs where you translate those memories into a much more robust and resilient imprint of what you've tried to learn if you go to sleep. So cramming all night before an exam is probably a less good strategy than cramming very hard and then having a sleep, regardless of actually the volume you know, because the quality of the recall will be better. One more be question. Tip. That answers how wide it's so badly at school. Yes, what is your name and your question? Last question, I'm afraid. My name is Silas. Uh, Earlier on, you said uh, the right hand of the brain 
control the left hand uh, hemisphere. So, I mean, I know you are not God, but do, <laughs> why do you think God made it this way? Why do you have to have this thing coming this way and this one controlling this side of the, of the body? Why is it a cross system? Do you want me why? to do that or you want to talk about that? Um, this is a, a very interesting point, which is why should the left side of my brain control the right-hand side of my body and vice versa? So when you have a stroke, for example, or damage to the left-hand side of the brain, then things, the symptoms are manifest down the opposite side of the body. Why is the nervous system crossed over? Scientists have never come up with a really satisfactory answer to this. One suggestion is that if you look in fish, for example, they have what's called a lateral line. And this is a band of tissue which is very sensitive to low frequencies. And the idea here is that if they detect low-frequency vibration on that side of their body, this could signal that a predator is coming. So if you tell the other side of the brain to become very active, it would take the fish away from the stimulus. Also, if you look at how the visual system works, in order for me to see the world, everything from the middle of the room to my right is being combined and presented to the left-hand side of my brain. But the information on my right is hitting both the right-hand side of the left-hand side of my right eye and the left-hand side of my left eye. So I've got both eyes receiving stimulus from the right-hand side of the room and vice versa. How do I bring together the two contributions of the eyes unless I cross the information over and merge it on the opposite side of the brain? And so people think that also this crossing over was developed as a strategy to get good vision and that perhaps it then got applied to other bits of the nervous system as well because it was once you'd wired it up for the visual system, which is extremely difficult to do, it made sense to wire it up for everything else that way. But we don't actually have a very satisfactory answer to that question, I'm afraid. It's a good one. Right. I'm so sorry, all of you who had questions. You'll meet the Naked Scientist again on the radio next week. We have to leave it there. Can I just say a big, big thank you for making this fun, real, interactive. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. And to the mummies and daddies and grannies and caregivers who accompanied their children here today, thanks for showing this interest and allowing these future scientists an opportunity to interact with the Naked Scientists and the schools, of course, for releasing them for just a few minutes. Thank you so much. I do have a tweet here from Sean again. What will the format of the, uh, of the Naked Scientists be at the RAND show? So what can people expect between the 18th and the 28th? It's going to be brilliant. Come along. Uh, we've got a live stage show of linked experiments, and we've got basically physics and chemistry meet neuroscience. And we called the show Blow Your Mind, because basically we're going to blow loads of stuff up, going to make lots of bangs and sounds and whistles and pops, and then explain basically how your brain is dealing with them all. Now, who would, want, who would like to miss that? You wouldn't want to miss that. Thank you all for coming, and we'll see you again next year, right? Hint, 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 hint. Yeah? <laughs> Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.